Welcome back to A Movie and an Argument, Return from Winter Hiatus. I'm Melissa Rosenberg, the culture critic at Think Progress and a columnist for Slate in the Atlantic. And I am joined, as always, by... I'm Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin. I'm the interactive writing fellow and movie guy at Mother Jones Magazine's DC Bureau. Alyssa, thanks for joining me as oh, always. It's great to be back. I missed you guys. Uh, for any listeners who are wondering where I disappeared to, I was on a long hiatus at the Winter Television Critics Association press tour and then the Sundance Film Festival, which will yield all sorts of goodies down the road. Um, but I missed you all very much. And so it's good to be back in our swank studio at Mother Jones headquarters. And I was here not traveling and having fun. <laughs> you, get, you get to travel and have all the fun. Well, you know, it's these things happen. I'm back to share the goodies. Um, Thank you. Despite promising you movies, today is going to be an all-television edition of A Movie and an Argument. And mm-hmm. let's start off with Netflix's first original series, House of Cards. Uh, how much of House of Cards has been released, all 13 episodes of the first season at once, um, and so it's prompting a lot of conversations about binge-watching and whether it's good for us or whether we're all just rats hitting the sugar bar. Uh, how much of House of Cards have you watched so far? A couple of minutes of the first episode. You're going to have to be the authority on this. I know I know the bare bones basics. And I, I am a Kevin Spacey fan, so I can comment on that. I, I agree that I am a Kevin Spacey fan. Um, I watched all 13 episodes of House of Cards in part because I was home with uh, fever under the weather on Monday. And so I was your archetypal rat hitting the sugar bar. Um, <laughs> by which I mean I was lounging on my couch moaning, drinking orange juice, and hitting play a lot on my... Uh, uh, DVD player. Um, what did you What did you get from those first few minutes that you watched? Uh, they're doing everything they can to make Kevin Spacey a Shakespearean character. Yeah. In uh, um, democratic wolf clothing. Sure. Um, I actually didn't think. So I found House of Cards mesmerizing. Right, I couldn't stop watching it. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I watched the whole thing in less than two days. Um, I also didn't think it was as good as it wanted to be. Um, my friend Willa Paskin, in her review of the show for Salon, said something that I think is sort of perfectly perceptive. You don't notice if there's grit in your food if you're not chewing it. Um, mm-hmm. And so just sort of <laughs> bolting down House of Cards may be the perfect way to watch it because I think you'll notice fewer flaws in it. Um, but I think it's kind of – it's a show that takes itself extremely seriously, right? And – its pedigree sort of makes that make sense. Um, House of Cards is an adaptation of a much beloved British miniseries um, about a parliamentary leader who is snubbed by effectively Margaret Thatcher and sets off to have his revenge on her through the press and sort of the levers of government. And um, one of his chosen tools is a young reporter played in this version by Kate Mara as Zoe Barnes. Um, And it's a show that takes itself very, very seriously about what is wrong with Washington. But the problem is that it's bought into a whole bunch of myths about Washington. It, you know, it's a show that uses in an extraordinarily high number of cable news figures, despite the fact that, you know, cable news is kind of a cancer on American society and, um, you know, is one of the ways that sort of very destructive memes about politics get spread that, you know, emphasizes the focus on sort of horse race coverage um, and that gives sort of platforms to lots of sort of apocalyptically stupid views. So it's kind of bought into the system that it can't actually criticize. Um, the show also just fundamentally believes 
And this is a form of cynicism that I think a lot of people who want to seem sophisticated trot out, but that I think is actually extraordinarily naive, which is that ideology doesn't really matter. Policy details don't matter. Power for its own sake is sort of how Washington works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's an extent to which that's true, but... You know, there are a lot of extremely destructive people at work in Washington who are at work and who have become powerful on the backs of ideas. Um, you know, I mean, it's not, you know, people who are trying to dramatically limit women's autonomy over their own bodies aren't like doing it for giggles. Right. You know, I mean, those are people who have very specific views about what women, what roles women should and should not be allowed to play in society and are pursuing them with, you know, dogged ambition. Um, you know, fr um, Frank Underwood, Spacey's character, sort of says at one point that, you know, leave ideology aside, it does me no good. And that's just, I think, an extraordinarily naive view of how strong a lot of people in Washington are in their ideology and the lengths that they're willing to go to secure it. So it's the show that thinks of itself as sort of cynical and knowing that I actually think is fairly naive about how the process works. Right. And I'll weigh more on that when I've seen it more. But in terms of um, what you were saying about how seriously the show takes it, I, I have a feeling that it thinks it is way more realistic than it actually is, which yeah. I think you were pointing to a little bit, which is which is fine. I mean, I'm not... Like, I really like the first three and a half, four seasons of The West Wing, and I wouldn't say that's completely realistic sure. to Washington politics. But, like, little things where, uh, like, they make the Washington Post or the Washington Post stand in hugely influential. Right. In D.C. <laughs> like, I, well, they not there's... only make it hugely influential. The show is set in 2013, and, you know, right. all in... of the old school journalists at the Washington Herald, this stand in for the Post hate the internet and think it's evil. Right, which right. is like... The real-life Washington Post has built a publication within a publication around a blogger who does a lot of cable news hits and is influential on Twitter as Recline. It's given right. blogs to a young woman, Alex Petri, who, you know, is a humorist rather than a political reporter like Zoe Barnes' mm -hmm. character. But, you know, the idea that Washington is still fighting some antiquated, naive battle against the power of the internet is... One of the dumbest things I've seen on television in a long time. Right. Like, the most influential and successful aspects of the Post right now, at least that I've been are able to pick. Are on the web. Yes, are on the web. Or at least know about it and take advantage of it and don't, like, shit on blogging or, right. like, and the Twitter. Show is, uh, the show is sort of hysterical about the idea that Zoe's character might essentially tell a congressman, give me what you want to say and I'll print it. Um, the idea is that nobody in Washington does this. It's really scandalous that she does this. The only reason that she's doing it is because she's sort of morally and sexually compromised is sleeping with him. Give me a break. I mean, lots of Washington journalism is incredibly quid pro quo and there's little follow up. And it's just that this person said this, right. the scandal of Washington journalism is not that one person might do that. It's that a lot of Washington journalism lost that battle a long time ago. Right. And um, again, you know, it's a show that thinks it's really knowing and it's kind of actually missing the larger scandal. Mm -hmm. Which, and again, the thing I'm, I'm not bashing it or the little bit of it I've seen sure. or the, what you're criticizing for being unrealistic. Because I don't think that's necessary for 
a show like House of Cards necessarily be good. I, I just have a problem when shows take themselves so seriously and have this like really earnest or gr- or gritty air about them when the punches they're blowing don't really seem to be grounded in anything or aren't right. landing hard enough because they think they know everything and the like we're going to tell the audience the artistic truth and this is the truth about DC when you don't know enough about it to right. be plausible like at least be mildly plausible right. enough to like make me feel that Kevin Spacey is a good representation of what I hate about the city I live in which right. I, I, I I don't have faith yet that it'll be doing that yeah I mean I think it's you know, and there's some lovely things in House of Cards. The eighth episode, which is set substantially back at the Sentinel, where Frank's character went to college, or sorry, the Citadel. Jeez, I can't talk. Um, uh, you know, it's really sort of lovely and nostalgic, and it's outside of Washington, and it gets at some actual emotional truths and plausible relationships. And just very little of the rest of the show is like that. You know, it's a show that's really into sort of dirtiness and nastiness, on the grounds that those are somehow truer emotions. Um, you know, Zoe and one of her characters, an older reporter named Janine Skorsky, who's played by Constance Zimmer, who some of you may remember as... Um, uh, is Donna her name on... What's her name? From Entourage, the studio head. Who already has the affair with. You know who I'm talking about. I, I do, but not blind. by name. It's... And, um, Anyway, you know, those characters are said to be apocalyptically nasty to each other. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Janine's character is using language like, I would never call another woman in public, much much less in the middle of an editorial meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, Janine is very critical of Zoe for sort of sleeping her way to the top and then eventually reveals that, oh, everybody's doing it. Like, everybody's sleeping with somebody. It just, it's this show that's like, ooh, this is filthy, so it must be more honest and gritty. And right. you know what? Like the community of po- female political correspondents in Washington is lovely. I started my career at National Journal, where mm-hmm. you know, like some of the people I was sleeping with weren't. Sli- I, <laughs> some of the, <laughs> the truth comes out. House of Cards has gotten to be you guys. Some of the people I was learning to report from, you know, weren't sleeping with sources because they happened to be gay or because they happened to be professionals, as most women in Washington journalism are. Like. You know, sometimes the truth is interesting without being filthy or degraded or, you know, gratuitously unpleasant. It's very bizarre. I got to say, I've been here professionally for less than two years, but I, uh, I, I know very few reporters who are sleeping with their sources, male or female. I mean, I don't know. I have I'm never, <laughs> I have, you know what, I have never met anyone who slept with a source. You know, I just like, people don't actually do that. Right. You know, not least because, like, sources aren't that into it either. <laughs> you know? It's like people are busy and professional and have happy and full personal lives. And, like... Journalists don't have the sex appeal that movies and TV like, generally tend banging to. banging each other is quid pro quo. <laughs> um, it's very bizarre. Right. Um, but, yeah, I think the whole, like, nastiness is truer than niceness has become a really just a pernicious element of our prestige television mm-hmm. and i'm kind of i'm over it you know well, not least because it's often not it, true it's a similar reason why um ever since the end of the bush years i've been really pissed off with californication yeah on Showtime, starring David Duchovny, of course, is Hank Moody this like why huge... don't you love me david Duchovny? <laughs> oh god this uh hugely debauched like 
fiction writer played by Duchovny going around carousing with like rock stars and other writers who are always, always, always swearing, having their tongues in like groupies' mouths, if yeah. not other orifices, and snorting large lines of coke. It's like endless, constantly, constantly, constantly. And it's what you were saying earlier. It's like boring. Be, It's boring. And it's trying to go off the same thing you were saying earlier with like DC reporters are always sleeping with their sources. Uh, television trying to shove it down our throats that um, smutty is more true than something that's tamer. And I'm sorry, just, uh, yes, rock stars and, like, I don't know, fiction writers who came to prominence in the 80s often have crazy lifestyles. But right. it's not, it gets boring if you take that well, and, and exaggerate to the nth degree. It's, it's not a substitute for doing the work of developing a complex dynamic between two people, right? Or, like, right. writing a seduction or writing yeah. people falling for each other over a period of time. It is lazy. Or you... Or even the uh, like the guys who were involved in Facebook when the, David Fincher's yeah. The Social Network came yeah. out. They were talking about how, wow, it would have been nice if that were the reality where all we did for like a year or so was like sleep with hot co-eds and yeah. go wild. But Party no, like it, was, stars. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was just like guys working at their computers really hard for a series of months. And, right, and being, you know, being shocked is not the only mode of human emotion I'm interested in, in experiencing when I watch popular entertainment, right? right. Like. Sometimes I like to be moved or touched or sad or, you know, God forbid, actually laugh at something because it's really funny. You know, it just it, there's this monochrome that's developing and it's distressing. Right. Um, but not, speaking of things that are not monochrome, let's talk uh, about the return of Smash. Oh, boy. Which is not monochrome, but is also not good. Season two on NBC. Before we get into the second season, let's go back to the start. Season one, which premiered roughly a year ago. Right. I think from the beginning, you and I were at odds on it. Because even until the end of the first season, which became critically maligned by the beginning of uh, summer 2012, I had faith in it. You I, were on board. I was on board. I you, liked it. You wanted it. to see Catherine McPhee in Asari. I Sure. <laughs> there were a lot of things I wanted to see about the show. I genuinely cared about these dumb characters. It charmed me, and I thought the show got progressively better instead of progressively or immediately worse, as everybody else did. I just had a completely different mirror sure. image opinion of the show. Um, and w what did you think about it when season one premiered or as the se first season I, went I on? thought it was a show that didn't trust itself at all. And, I mean, that's actually something that I've come to feel much more strongly since starting to watch ABC's Nashville, mm -hmm. um, which is another show about creating music and performance and sort of the business of art, but that really trusts itself and, like, takes its time and doesn't rush and has never felt the need to poison anyone with a peanut smoothie. Um, yeah, that was pretty dumb. Um, so yeah, I just thought it was a show that like, again, sort of needed to ratchet up the drama all the time. Like, m you know, I also just thought Catherine McPhee was horrible. I think she's a really bad actress. Um, and I think Megan Hilty is awesome and a rock star. And the show was just never credible that like this sort of washed out mealy mouthed personality -less girl would be beating out, beating out Megan Hilty for anything ever. Cause Megan Hilty is awesome. I have strong feelings. You do. Um, but at the very start of it, like the first se episode, the pilot, did you at least like the music? The, yeah, uh, it was, yeah, I mean, it was I, snappy. Like there, you know, there was stuff going on that was interesting. And like, I bowed down at the altar of Angelica Huston, who I ran into at, in an elevator in Los Angeles in January. And like, how is she? She's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> did um, you start melting right in front of her? Um, I just, or did you keep it together? Keep um, I think I said... 
hello, I thanked her for holding the elevator for me, <laughs> and then just sort of like was very quiet. Nice. So, you know. I'm fist bumping you right now. Nobody can tell. But, uh, you but are. anyway, yeah, I. I really, yeah. I had faith in the show, even at the end of the first season, because I genuinely like the music. I'm a huge musical buff. Right. Like, and this, the music and lyrics here are written by the same guys who did, like, Hairspray and the Catch Me If You Can yeah. uh, musical ab- adaptation that was on Broadway just a little while yeah. ago. And I, I really dug the music, thought the show was silly enough to hold my attention, and was really looking forward to season two and hoping that all the retoolings that... Uh, the new showrunners and the new people behind it said they were going to do like different cast members for the second season. I was hoping that, I don't know, maybe that would please some people and bring some viewers back. So the show wouldn't get canceled after like season episode three of season two. Yeah. Um, that was not the case from just purely numbers. The, uh, the ratings for the first two episodes, which premiered Wednesday night, nothing. Basically, the people who watched it did so accidentally in this country by leaving the TV on after whatever came before it. Right. And uh, you know what? I can't say I am too sorry about that. Um, these first two episodes were insufferable for me, and this is from me, coming from a guy who just spent the last like four minutes telling you how much I enjoyed the first season, even though maybe I shouldn't have. Well, and part of it is that I think the it feels like they're prolonging just stuff moving along in the show, right? Mm. I mean, you know, the entire first season was this competition between Karen and Ivy, and Nashville was smart enough to sort of mix up the dynamic between its rivals, you know, Reyna and Juliet. They, you know, they got forced to collaborate on things. They switched on and off. You know, it just the show has a lot Nashville has allowed its events to move forward and smash is sort of stuck in this holding position where it thinks the only thing that's of any interest is the rivalry between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the show is never going to happen because then they'd have to make a decision. Right. And I don't know. It's just, they've sanded off some of the worst edges, like, you know, Deborah Messing's car- I don't even know the names of the characters anymore. Deborah Messing's character's right. husband and w- idiot's Half son. of Will and Grace's husband. Yes. Um, and they've gotten rid of some of the scarves, and there's some meta-acknowledgement of things that were, you know, not successful about the show. But it's really not that different. No, it isn't. It, and I think what is different about it is it's blender. There's less joy in it. And the fact that they've taken – they've basically taken away, at least for these – like the premiere of the second season, the rivalry between uh, McPhee and Hilti's character. I mean – By uh, making McPhee's character like snooty and superior. Yeah, and like the new muse of uh, uh, the Derek? Derek. Yeah, the director Derek who's kind of like an exaggerated Sam Mendes, like a, like this right. highly respected and acclaimed theater and film uh, right. it's just like gag me with a spoon, you know. I mean, and I really like the actor playing Derek, who's like one of the best things in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I mean, he's a good actor, but I mean, there are just there are so many people working so hard on so little. I yes, the the only the only thing that flowed my heart. And I actually actually have to say it was electrifying. Maybe even worse, trudging through the first two episodes. I, I think it was towards the end of episode two, where Megan Hilty sings like a song from. The musical Bombshell, which is yeah. the musical in this TV show, right. a song that we haven't heard yet, um, to just a crowd of people at a gala having dinner. And it's absolutely fantastic. It's electrifying. And um, I don't know. I, I just replayed it a few times because it, it made me less angry to have gotten this again, far in this the second season. But again, this is the basic season. problem with the show is that McPhee is a limited talent. 
I, she's a beautiful woman. I won't deny that. I think she is a limited talent. I don't think she is as good as a, I don't think she is is as good a singer as Hilti is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she has nearly the sort of actorly range that Hilti does. And Smash has had to spend so much time artificially propping up the idea that Karen is this brilliant ingenue, and I don't think it's there. You know, I mean, when a show has sort of a structural problem like that and has to keep telling you that you should ignore it. Mm-hmm. That is a problem for that show. You know, I would have argued against you for the first season, but right now, I it's, it, I'm I'm having trouble seeing what I was thinking. Yeah. May, maybe that's just because I've been too blinded with rage with the beginning of this second season. But just, I think it's mainly because McPhee's character. I, I mean, I think she's an okay. She's she's fine at the very least, passable actress. But it doesn't even seem like she's trying. No. anymore it seems like she's really bored with the material they've made no. her character completely snooty bland and uninterested yeah like in her own artistic pr- pursuits and you're right she's a little bit snooty for somebody who hasn't made it yet yeah she's she like did did well in like a limited run of their musical in boston and yeah. they're trying to get it on broadway but now there's yeah. all this financial mess so they can't get it on broadway yeah. and the hunger that was in her eyes and in her voice, yeah, whatever you thought re- of her performance of the first season, it's, just it, it's gone. Yeah. It's like completely no, sapped. There. But uh, I don't know. What what, what are your uh, wagers? What's your bet for uh, how long this show NBC, is going to go I mean, before? NBC's in trouble, right? Like they, um, this has tanked. Do No Harm has ha- tanked. 1600 Pen is in the process of aggressively tanking. Um, you know, NBC is screwed, right? And so I think we'll probably get, like, the full season run of Smash, because what, what else are they going to put on the air, you know? it's Mid-mid-season replacements. Right. I mean, they're going to bring us back Revolution and, a season, like, a summer edition of or a spring edition of The Voice, but, um, you know, they just, they, the NBC miracle of the fall without The Voice and Revolution and football is, like, functionally gone. And so, yeah, I think Smash will stick around, you know? I just wish we'd gotten a full season of Parenthood instead. Yeah, I'll I'll second that. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, you, is it just me or things gotten worse? Like every time we get to another year of mid season at NBC, has it hit a bottom yet? Has I, it been plateauing for a while? I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to see. You know, why don't we save ourselves and round out the podcast with something that both of us like? I would like that. Which is the Americans Absolutely. on FX, which I think is great. I've only seen the first two episodes. Can't wait for the third one. I've seen the third. Um, so the Americans, for those of you unwise enough to have devoted your uh, not to have devoted your Wednesday evenings to it yet, um, is a story of two KGB agents living deep under uh, undercover in the Washington suburbs. Um, they're played by Carrie Russell, returning to TV for the first time since Felicity and. Matthew Rice. Their names are Philip and Elizabeth Jennings. They have two kids who have absolutely no idea that their parents are commies. Um, And they have a neighbor, played by Noah Emmerich, who works for the FBI. And the show is just really charming, right? Because it's, you know, it's doing this unique thing for anti-hero dramas, which is making you root for people not because they're awesome at being violent. Um, Like, the fact that they're awesome at being violent is not simultaneously the thing that lures you in and is sort of meant to repel you. It's getting you to root for socialists, which is a fairly daring thing well, for not even not even socialists really, like, like Soviets, hard, yeah, like Soviet ha- communists, hardened like authoritarian, maybe even totalitarian thinking communists. But e- even there, it gets you, 
it doesn't really get you to do that because it doesn't get you to root for uh, like Brezhnev or the Soviet it, generals it, who are but like. But it gets commit. you to root for some interesting things, right? Like there's this ongoing plot line um, in the show where Philip and Elizabeth have a 13 year old daughter who's starting to like go to the mall and get into consumer culture. And Elizabeth has always found America, America sort of affluence and American sort of reliance on an enjoyment of it, this sign of decadence. And suddenly it's becoming this thing that is like literally seducing her daughter who's getting hit on by creepy older dudes at the mall. She's showing up wearing like, a, a, you know, a shirt that exposes her red bra strap. She wants mm. her ears pierced. And so Elizabeth is dealing with this like double loss of her daughter to womanhood and to American capitalism. Mm -hmm. You know, it's and I think that's a very clever device to get you think of it, thinking about like, are you scared of your daughter's sexual availability? Are you scared of her like buying into this, you know? faction of capitalism that gets her to sort of question what she should be looking at like i mean it's a very it's very clever right and it's uh but i say again even though they make it a little bit more complicated because she um played terrifically by carrie russell God, by russell the way. is amazing she, she and claire Wethering. danes are going to be going head to head at the, at the emmys next year I'll be rooting for Carrie Russell. I'll I'll be Team Russell. Yeah, Team Carrie. I'm with you. After this last season of Homeland, I am with you. But but anyway, she uh, she is like the hardened ideologue. Like she yes. she's the one who's like, and it's not even made clear how devoted she is to communism or whatever. Like perverted. she's devoted to the KGB. Yeah, she's devoted to the KGB. She's uh she's a company woman when yeah. it comes to and. Uh, yelling about how she would rather lose everything than betray her country. She says very, very little about ideology, whereas yeah. her husband actually flirts in the first episode. And not flirts, like strongly, yeah, strongly could. suggests and advocates defecting to the Americans so they can disappear, not have to do this spy shit anymore. Have a good living. Yeah, like... and there is a family's what matters. And he actually says, it's like, we've been in America a long time. What's so bad about it? America's yeah. not so bad. The electricity is always on. The food's pretty great. Right. The closet space. Like, he... And she, you know, her response is, these are the things that matter to you. And it's, the show is sort of, there are all of these really interesting little interactions where, like, in the second episode, um, their neighbor, uh, Stan, is, you know, trying to get a mole in the Soviet uh, embassy and is shaking down this stereo uh, store owner and ends up stealing a tin of caviar from him. Mm. And as a neighborly thing, brings it over to his neighbors, the Jennings, <laughs> to try it out. And there's this sort of lovely scene at the end where Philip kind of presents this spread with the caviar to Elizabeth and asks her if she's ever had it before. She said, no, we didn't. We were like you in the Soviet Union. We didn't have any money, you know. Um, right. And so American capitalism has gotten both American capitalism and the sort of corruption and decadence of a Western government has gotten them access to this lovely part of their culture that as ordinary <laughs> Soviet citizens, they never had. Yeah. I mean, it's just brilliant. And but it's also just a show about marriage. Right. And I'm, I'm finding that aspect of the show really touching. It It is my favorite part of the show right now because this is a manufactured marriage for people yeah. who haven't tuned in yet, and I highly recommend you do. They were put together in the 60s to start learning English better than Americans can speak it. And, Forbi get... and forbidden to tell each other anything about their real identities. Right. Like they have only ever told each other the fake stories of their lives, mm -hmm. which comes into play in the first episode when we find out before, even before Philip does that – 
um, Elizabeth was sexually assaulted by her KGB training officer. Right. And as a result, he's been doing all of these things that make her really uncomfortable, like smushing an ice cream in her face when they're out with their kids, mm-hmm. coming up behind her and like putting his arms around her at the sink. He's been doing all these things that like come across as predatory and that hurt her and make her sexually uncomfortable. But because she hasn't been allowed to tell him this true story about her life, he's been a bad husband to her for two decades. Right. You know, it's this wrenching thing. Mm-hmm. And you can... You definitely can sense a genuine affection they have for each other. I would argue he has... He is in love with her. He is in love with her. There's no question about that. And she... I I think she more looks at him as, you are the father of my children. Because they are. They they have children together. And they're very devoted to those children. Yeah. Um, But it's this... I mean, it's sort of a story about people who are falling in love with each other halfway through their marriage. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of cool. You know, I mean... It's... And I think that, you know, my understanding is that, like, marriages sort of have peaks and valleys and that we've been with someone for a long time. You can get lucky enough to sort of fall in love with them all over again. And mm-hmm. it's it's this very tender story. It's I mean, it's so emotional and it's plausibly emotional. Right. Like Homeland uh, yeah. got into this big, like, dramatic love story that I never found exceptionally convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this just this feels really real. You know, like, how do you deal with your emotions towards this person who you've built a life with without ever fully emotionally committing to? And then how do you decide that you want to commit to them? That's fascinating. And it is this fascinating and tender story set against the backdrop of, like, this anxiety-packed, espionage-driven, taut suspense thriller that has, you know, plenty of, uh, (laughs) you know, Soviet spies doing martial arts and... um, uh, like being hot on the trail of a fleeing defector as like <laughs> 80s like um like pop rock pulsates in the background like it, it, tusk. it is tusk. <laughs> it is this and, and all that is directed and assembled very nicely yeah. it, it's quite thrilling but at the heart of it it is a movie uh, i mean i'm sorry a, a series about family at least that's the way it seems for now and i i think that is incredibly wise and um, genuinely emotionally affecting. Yeah. It's moving. I also think, despite the fact that there's the sort of kick-ass CIA stuff, the action choreography is really good. And mm-hmm. it's actually relatively true to action choreography of the 80s, right? It's not... So it's like, the fights aren't particularly balletic. Um, like, when someone gets hit, it looks like it hurts. Um, right. A lot of the fights are... Um, or people getting hit or shot relatively close up. It's not like a big wide aperture. This isn't, mm-hmm. you know, action as, you know, performance art. It's action as, you know, people getting injured. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I, it's good. You know, I feel like it's, it's a thing that's making me feel like television is fun again. Because TV has felt like a slog to me for the last six mm-hmm. months. It wasn't a particularly strong creative fall. Um a lot of the cable stuff that I'm excited about isn't back till the summer, you know. Breaking Bad is ending, and I'm sad about that. This is just a show that gives me pleasure to watch, mm-hmm. you know. And I haven't felt that way about television in a while. It, I'm, uh, I am at least partially with you on that one. I, it hasn't seemed as dreary to me in the last few months. I sure. think that's because I appreciate Boardwalk Empire a little bit more than more I do. than you do. But it's, um. So far, I hate to rate things as fantastic when I've only seen, like, the first couple or few episodes of the entire series. Yeah. But what I'm seeing so far is – has been remarkably engrossing. And the uh, – it's going to get a lot of inevitable comparison to Homeland. We've talked yeah. about that already yeah. because, you know, both, like, 
agents of the enemy on U.S. soil, blah, blah, blah. Both of them are in cable. Both of them are critically acclaimed hour-long dramas. But the thing it reminded me of the most was this um, show on Showtime. Sleeper Uh, Cell? Yes, Sleeper Cell. That was canceled a few years ago after two seasons. Two brilliant seasons. Two really good seasons. Michael Elio, Dead Fair, unbelievable. And it's really annoying because, like, the second season ended on, like, a major cliffhanger, and we'll never know what happens. But anyway, um, that show was um, in the years following 9-11. Somebody at Showtime was ballsy enough to say, let's put on a show of what it would be like to be, to embed the audience in a sleeper cell on American soil, who's trying... specifically trying to carry out the next 9-11. Yeah. And it, I think it premiered in, like, 2006, yeah. like, in the middle of, like, uh, uh, Bush's second term. And uh, and the way it gets you to hate but also, to a certain extent, sympathize with these, like, uh, jihadists, all of different skin color and different backgrounds, uh, was remarkable, which is a lot of what I see in... Uh, the Americans in the sense of we are starting to look at these Soviet spies who are trying to subvert at every turn American democracy at the dawn of the Reagan era. We're looking at them as, you know, lovable. Yeah. Lovable lovebirds who love their kids and play hockey. And I I feel like it's a show that takes itself seriously sort of in an inverse way from Homeland. Like Homeland thinks of itself as this like really serious message show. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the Americans is sort of removed, you know, it's not commenting on American policy or anything that's going on right now, but what it, it takes itself, it takes its sort of craft and emotional plausibility seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, the big issues are a way of getting of this really human stuff instead of this really human stuff being a way to sort of magnify this perspective on the big issues. Right. And, you know, I think it takes itself seriously in terms of like being well made and, the characters feeling real and their interactions feeling real. It takes itself seriously as craft rather than as message. And as a result, I think it's more effective on both craft and message than the second season of Homeland was. Mm -hmm. And unlike something like Homeland, the emphasis isn't political. Like the, like in the right. Americans, I, mean, I, I would say the show has like it has a politics. Like it has very clear and interesting gender politics. It has, you know, um, I think very interesting views on sort of marriage and equality and like what espionage does to people, but it doesn't have like an immediately applicable political lesson right. to a current um, conflict. Or even the eighties, because yeah. like the most you hear about like. What do you hear about Ronald Reagan, except for the like the occasional FBI agent saying that was Ronald Reagan's press secretary on the phone? Well, because you, you don't you s- hear the Soviet perspective that he's crazy and irrational, right. which the Soviets thought he was. Like, right? Yeah, one like, of the, I mean, one of the reasons that the air traffic controller strike was broken the way it was is that Reagan wanted to communicate that he could be sort of radical and absolutist and unpredictable to the Soviets. Mm-hmm. Like, he was essentially like. That was a foreign policy decision as much as it was a domestic one. Right, right. Absolutely. There's this uh, softly bearded Russian general who's talking to Elizabeth at one point. The and colonel. The, yes, the, co- uh, the colonel. And he uh, says, uh, the American people have elected a madman mm, as the yeah. president who was, like, hell-bent on destroying us. Yeah. And... Like, people really believe that. Th- like, they there's did another half that. to this equation, and that is the thing that... Right. You know, yeah. and I think that's... The, the show isn't making a lefty political statement that Reagan was a nut job and making things... It's not saying that. No, it's that, that it's people made that... decisions based on these beliefs, right? right. Which is the Just same as... thing that Sleeper Cell did, right? That, right. You know, one of the things that Sleeper Cell did is the idea was that people sort of came to Al-Qaeda for a bunch of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Like, 
you know, disaffection with their mother's liberalism from, like, actual, you know, the experience of growing up in the Middle East and, like, being bombed. You know, people don't make decisions for no reason. People don't come to hate the United States for no reason. Our actions have consequences and they're often unpredictable. And that in and of itself, I think, is sort of a useful political framework that we don't use often enough. And I think that's one that television can argue for in a really effective way. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I guess the takeaway from this discussion is ultimately watch the lovable Soviet spies who smack talk Reagan and do Kung Fu, um, which airs on FX. It it absolutely does have the potential to be one of like, uh, to be a phenomenal series. I I really do believe that. Again, and I, I'm also the guy who thought Smash was going to overcome its sh- shortcomings. So maybe I should uh, stop trying to be the... Uh, I'm in danger of becoming the Dick Morris of prognosticating well, TV I, series. I will be I will be the Megyn Kelly to your Dick Morris. I'll be the <laughs> voice of reason and say that um, the Americans is, good, is as good as Swin thinks it is. And the two of us don't always don't always or often agree this strongly. So you should check it out. Wednesdays, 10 p.m. FX. Absolutely. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I missed you guys. It's good to be back.